Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back for episode three. We so appreciate all of you who keep coming back, and welcome to those who are new to Unforgotten. In case you guys missed it. Um, We started a Patreon account for people who've been following and listening to the cases and, you know, want to get a little bit more information. You know, Brittany's case was extremely detailed and we knew it was a lot to follow when we were going through and preparing for it. So we're going to be able to share a little bit more information on the Patreon account um, just to kind of help clear some things up and encourage you to join in on the discussions. You know, let us know your thoughts and what you, you know, think happened, your opinions, or, you know, if you got information, send it on over. I also want to add to that, that we thank you a lot for your ongoing patience as we continue to learn all that we're doing. Yes. Um, <laughs> obviously, we're still learning. So, um, and we did get a little bit of input. And so thank you for those who have, but um, feel free to message us with any comments or suggestions because we do want this not only to be informative but and helpful for the families, but we want to make sure that you guys, our audience, um, keep coming back and want to spend time with us. So uh, keep in mind, if you message us about the podcast specifically, we really would prefer you keep that in the social media um, pages under the messenger or send us an email just to kind of keep the focus on the actual cases on the pages. Um, and just thank you again, guys. And on more sort of a housekeeping thing, just a quick ask. We do hope that you like the episodes and are finding them informative. So we would really appreciate you heading on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your podcast and sending a rating on over. We'd appreciate a five-star rating. Um, This helps grow the podcast and bring others in so that they can hear about the cases. And we thank you a million in advance for doing that. But most of all, We encourage you to share that we're here so that we can continue to spread awareness about our Alabama cold cases. Before we begin our case today, um, which the first one is a missing child case, I thought I'd share a couple of staggering statistics from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NCMEC as many know it. Based off their 2021 data, um, that's in conjunction with the FBI. So according to the FBI National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, and uh, Sellers, this is the statistic that we saw yesterday that you were commenting on that, oh my gosh, it's so huge. I I could not believe it. It just seems like way more than what you would expect. Yeah. So this number, there were 
337,195 entries into the NCI system. That's nearly 340,000 missing children entries into their system. It's estimated that roughly 2,300 children go missing every day in the United States. And it's estimated that 30% of those children are trafficked. And just to throw in, um, sorry for interrupting you, but oh, no. there was a press release from the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office yesterday where they made a routine traffic stop on the interstate. And there were three individuals in the vehicle. One was an 18-year-old. And the 18-year-old was being trafficked from California. She had been covered in bruises, cuts, her collarbone was broken. And just from a routine traffic stop, they they got her. Mm. That's great that they got her. And you hear about these stories all the time. So Nick Mick themselves received 94,428 calls and assisted with 27,733 cases regarding missing children in 2021 across the United States. So that's just NCMEC that is taking care of those calls. And in Alabama themselves, now it doesn't seem quite as much in comparison, but if you think about the number, that's a lot of people just for one area. There were 211 cases, and again, this is in 2021, that came through them. Huh? Too many. Yeah, yeah. By the end of 2021, there were 32 of those cases left that were still active. But, you know, we have to remember that the numbers are revolving. So this doesn't touch on the ongoing number of new cases coming in as the other cases are being solved. And as we all know, though we're in the age of DNA, where more cases are being solved and children are being located, there are some that stay on that list year after year after year. Yeah. And, you know, currently in the Aaliyah database, it shows that there's 51 children listed in the Aaliyah database for missing children. Right. That's a lot. That is a lot. And, you know, we've talked about that that's not all encompassing because we know that there are people who haven't been entered into the Aaliyah database. Exactly. Yeah. So jumping into the case of Daniel Barter, or Danny, as he was affectionately called, he is one of those children. He is Alabama's oldest missing child case listed in NECMET. Four-year-old Danny was born on December 12, 1954. He was a petite Caucasian boy with brown eyes and wavy brown hair. He was approximately three feet tall and weighed a scant 50 pounds dripping wet. He came from a large family with six siblings, three older brothers, one older sister, and a younger brother and sister who were twins. His father, Paul, was raised in Mobile and later enlisted in the military. He met Danny's mother, Maxine, at a local restaurant where she was working as a waitress. The two were married and decided to settle in Mobile to raise their family. Everyone said that the Barter family, and Danny in particular, seemed to be very happy. On June 16, 1959, Danny and his three older brothers helped his mom and dad load up supplies to head to a camping trip with his uncle Jim Barter and his son at Perdido Bay. Jim owned the land that they were camping on, which is located around the area of Boykin Boulevard in Lillian, down by the bay 
and only about an hour from Mobile. So the following morning, Danny and his mother went to a store for some things. And for those who have read articles on Danny in the past, it originally they thought it was Danny and his father went to the store. So that was corrected later on. It actually was his mother. Oh, I don't think I knew that. It was like a lot of the articles you'll read will say it's his father. And I don't, I'm not exactly sure how they uncovered that that was that it was the other way. Um, so when they got back, the family started getting things ready to do some fishing. And you could, they saw Danny grab an E-high soda and kind of started playing nearby. Some accounts say that he was playing at the beach near the camp. And others say he was just standing right next to um, his mom, Maxine. Being a youngin, relaxing on a camping trip, he was still barefoot and in the gray boxers he slept in the night before. And I know, I remember being a kid and camping and he just wore whatever. <laughs> I've actually never been camping. You have never been camping, Sellers? No. Oh my, you've missed out. I don't think I want to sleep on the ground. <laughs> as a kid you don't really think about it as an adult you think about it a little bit more <laughs> uh, true true a few minutes passed and Maxine looked around and didn't see Danny the other children didn't know where he was either so they began to search they were a little panicked as most would be if their four-year-old wasn't in sight and not answering them so the entire family joined in the search and after searching for about 10 minutes or so up and down the beach and the road and everywhere in between, Maxine decided to go to a nearby home and verify he wasn't there. And then from there, they contacted the police. At first, they were afraid somehow that he had wandered up into the water and drowned. But aside from the water being really shallow at the time, I mean, so shallow that you could walk many yards out in the bay and or on the beach and not get wet above the ankles. So she knew he was also afraid of the water and just didn't think he would go in at all anyway. Once the police had been contacted and there had been no sign of Danny, the local PD and the sheriff's office, along with hundreds of volunteers, began searching the land and waters. The Baldwin County Sheriff at the time, Taylor Wilkins, brought his bloodhounds and there were helicopters, divers, and horses. Alligators were even captured and cut open on the off chance that he may have been caught by one. Except for repeated alerting by the bloodhounds to a particular spot near the road, no trace was ever found, not even the soda bottle he'd been drinking from. The family began to think maybe Danny wandered up the road and was picked up by a stranger, and that seems to be more like a viable theory with the search dogs alerting at the road. And at first, Sheriff Wilkins didn't think he was kidnapped. He just thought maybe he wandered off and got lost or possibly drowned. But it was evident he had not drowned after so many searchers had thoroughly combed the extremely shallow waters. The sheriff came around after taking that and the absence of the knee bottle and the alerting dogs at the road. As what had happened began to sink in for the family and neighbors, they started to recall odd events that had happened prior to the camping trip all adding to the suspicion that someone had likely stalked the family, specifically Danny, and kidnapped him. That's scary. That is really scary. I mean, just to think that somebody's following you. And 
to not really realize it, to think it was like just some weird thing that was going on and not really thinking anything of it, but how you would feel afterwards when you realized what it was. Uh, I cannot imagine thinking, oh, I should have paid more attention if I had just Mm -hmm. paid more attention, you know, Mm -hmm. before, before, you know, in the moment, yes, I imagine that a lot, but it's so hard to think that somebody even paying attention for so long to this family and you don't really think about that. Well, these are the events that they started to remember. So about a month before the camping trip, um, a man was parked in a car across the street from their home, which at the time made Maxine leery when she spotted him, which obviously I think it would me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So she decided to approach him, which I probably would have done too. I probably would have started off across the street with some authority. <laughs> exactly. And wanted to find out what he was doing. Well, as she first came toward him, he p- kind of put up a paper in front of him like he was reading a paper, a newspaper. Mm. But as she got, yeah, not at all. <laughs> That's kind of stereotypical, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but as she got closer, then he just put the paper down and drove away. Um, one thing we haven't heard is if there was any accounting to anybody that she had described the man to help with a potential identification. And I don't think there's anything, any kind of drawings, you know, with this being so far back, they would normally mm-hmm. put out sketches. And I don't think we've ever seen a sketch either. No. So another event um, happened, and this involved actually uh, Maxine and the boys and the neighbor. And so the neighbor recalled seeing a man standing sort of by the barter boy's bedroom. Um, and what actually alerted to them was they had a German shepherd, and he started barking towards the man that was standing by the window. So she ran to find Maxine, and as soon as the man apparently saw her, then he just, of course, fled. They found footprints in the dirt below the window, and Mobile police were called. They said It said that they made casts of the prints, but unfortunately, um, it, probably just over the passing of time, it's uncertain where they ended up. Um, it sounds like, actually, this is a little bit common in in this particular case that a lot of the uh, information that was gathered at the time did kind of either disappear or maybe was destroyed. We don't know. Um, So there isn't a lot of standing evidence anymore. But um, they also don't know, or we also don't know, if um, anyone had been able to make a description of this man either. I would hope so since the police were there, but we don't know that information. There's a lot of comments about the mom's recollection. Yeah, I know. What about the dad? Yeah, you'll kind of notice that mom is kind of centered in the story. Yeah. Um, more so. Um, so I don't know, you know, if he was often away at work or, you know, where exactly things stood with that. Um, of course, back in the day, the mom was always home and was usually around with the kids so that could be part of it but yeah um then yet another incident happened that was just the day before danny went missing 
And Maxine had taken all the boys to the grocery store. And the boys all waited outside in the station wagon. Now, can you imagine today nobody would do that? Or not many would do that anyway. Mm-mm, no. <laughs> but back in the day, that was so safe, they thought. My dad uh, so, talks about riding his bike when he was five years old around their neighborhood, which isn't an overly safe area. It's not a terrible area now, but mm-hmm. it's not what it used to be, like even from when I grew up over there. and But he talks yeah. about how he was five years old riding his bike around the neighborhood, and it wasn't a big concern at all. And I no. think, oh, there's no way I would let my kids do that. I know. I know. Isn't that crazy? But yeah, I think this is 1959. So Yeah. So one of Danny's brothers told their mom when she got back that a man had driven up next to their car and kind of just sat there staring at the kids, particularly seemed to be staring at Danny. That's creepy. Yeah. They thought it was really creepy. So of course they told their mom, but before mom came out, the guy just suddenly drove away. So once again, we still don't know if there was any accounting of what the description of this man was in the car. So we don't know yet if these are all three separate incidents or this is all one person. But it's kind of a recurring theme now. You almost um, would think it would be the same person, but... Yeah. I mean, it would lead you to th- at least look into that as a theory. Right. There are some additional stories that mention the barters may have seen a truck driving by the road by the camp that they were at um, that had a couple inside on the morning of the disappearance. So this road leading to the campsite is not really traveled much, and it would have been at least notable, if not out of place, where they were located. And I'll add, once again, there's no recounting of what this, these people look like. I, you know, I wonder if the sheriff's office or somebody has those details, and maybe that's just not something that's ever been put out to the public, but you would think that if there were details that they would put that out because you would want people to be looking. And I can't imagine that Maxine seeing this man sitting across from their home in his vehicle couldn't at least give them, I mean, obviously she wouldn't know how tall he was, but you have a Mm -hmm. general idea of his features, you would think. Yeah. But what about the neighbor? Yeah, I kind of, yeah, and the neighbor. Yeah, so there's a lot of people you know, it sounds like almost the maybe the whole family or several people in the family saw the, the couple in the truck. So, you know, there's several people who have seen this man or this these men or these people, I guess, because one of them was a woman. But, you know, the only thing I can think of that maybe happened was over time that information was also lost since they say a lot of the files were you really would think that you would have seen in some newspaper articles a sketch of some sort. Agreed. After several search attempts, investigators ran out of leads. There was no trace of Danny, the knee-high bottle, or any clothing. In 2000... By the way, sorry to interrupt you. I know that you and I had this discussion. Um, But for those of you who don't know what a knee-high is... (laughs) Oh, did you find out? uh, Huh? Did you find out? 
Oh, yeah. Knee-high is a type of soda um, that they used to drink back then. It was very popular. Um, some of you may recognize it if you watched the series MASH. Um, the character Radar always had a grape knee-high when he went to Rosie's bar. <laughs> I'm going to have to go check this out now because I had no idea what it was. So now you know. <laughs> In 2006, NECMEC released the first age progression of Daniel as an adult, aged to 52 years old. And over the years, they released three more. That hits home when you think that he was only four years old when he vanished. And the first age progression photo came out when he was 52. That's crazy. That's a lot of time passing. I know. Hurts my heart. In 2008, after receiving a tip that someone overheard a public conversation discussing Danny's case, the FBI reopened his case. Family also submitted DNA samples to a national database, hoping it would help if any evidence was ever found. Unfortunately, over the years, Daniel's parents passed away. Paul Barter passed in 1965 and Maxine Barter in 1995. Some of his siblings have also passed away. His brother Robert in 2010 and Ronald in 2013. Danny also had a younger brother, Anthony, that he was never able to meet because unknown to any of the Barter family, Maxine was pregnant when Danny went missing. Anthony sadly passed away from Hodgkin's disease in 1997. But the remainder of the Barter children are alive today living in Texas. In 2009, they held a candlelight vigil, renewing a commitment to Daniel to never give up trying to find him. Since the case was renewed in 2008 by the FBI, even with the release of three more progression pictures, side by side with his adorable picture at four years old, and I mean, this kid was just a cutie. Yes, he was. He, so cute. The case, though, seems to have stalled and no publicly known tips have come in. His siblings still hold on to some hope that Danny, who would now be 68 years old, is still alive and healthy, and one day they will find him and that he will somehow have been raised in a safe and happy environment. And so do we. If you or anyone you know has any information related to the disappearance of Daniel Barter, please contact the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office at 251 937 0202, or you can submit an anonymous tip on the FBI website. A link for that will be in the episode description. Our second case is also a missing person from Foley, Alabama, Brianna Lorleen Reyes, born March 24, 1990. Brianna, 30 years old at the time, had not been in contact with her family since April of 2020. Her family reported her missing in 2021 after they hadn't heard from her over the holidays. An unknown person reported that she was seen leaving her home in an unknown direction on June 19, 2020. According to the Aaliyah Missing Person Database, she is approximately 4'11 and around 92 pounds. She has brown eyes and black hair and was last seen in or around the Foley area. In the media or from the Foley Police Department, This is almost all they reported to the public. The only other bit of information they shared was that she was known to frequent the areas of Bon Secure and Magnolia Springs. We emailed the Foley Police Department a few months ago 
asking for a status on Brianna's case. And we were directed to the investigator that's currently handling her case. But then we never heard anything back. It's just, it's terrible when you have a case like this that really has nearly no information. Yeah. It's, you can't even imagine that they wouldn't have shared, you know, who she was with last or, you know, anything. (laughs) But this is really, truly all that you can find in the media. So it seems aside from the sources in the media, the really only the other source of information is Brianna's Facebook pages. So to help you get to know a little bit about Brianna, we're going to share a few things that are posted on her page that may give us a little insight into her life before she went missing. Please remember that this is, you know, this information hasn't been confirmed, or at least most of it. Um, And this is a social media page. So we're taking, you know, what she says at face value, unless we can confirm, you know, details otherwise. And if anybody listening has details, new Brianna, we would love to hear from you. Um, Absolutely. To help, you know, learn about who Brianna was and maybe what was going on in her life. According to Brianna, she was originally from Fayetteville, North Carolina, and attended Gulf Shores High School, which she graduated from in 2008. She moved to Orange Beach for a time with someone who appears to be her sister prior to graduating high school. In December of 2009, she met a man named Randy Englert, moved to Bon Secure, and they had a baby boy together in December of 2010. Now, one of the things in this information, she does post a document later on um, that may indicate that she may not have actually graduated from high school but got a GED. Um, But we'll go more into detail about the document later on. The next update we have in Facebook is in August of 2013, where she makes note that she is moving in with someone named Jared in Fairhope, and that they had to leave the residence after he had been arrested for narcotics possession, or so it seems. After that, there is quite a bit of jump in time before she updates her page again, and that's in June of 2017. So that's quite a distance. I don't know if there was another page somewhere. Yeah, I don't know if there's been another page somewhere that we haven't located or that she deactivated maybe, but um, this is all we could find. And at that time, she changes her profile pictures a few times from June until September of that year when her new profile becomes one with a man named Joseph Little. And then she officially changes her relationship status to in a relationship on August 26th of 2018. Again, there's a bit of time that's unaccounted for, but on February 5th of 2019, Brianna's Facebook showed that she and Joseph get engaged. By her pictures, at least so far, they seem happy, at least on the surface. The following day, February 6th, Brianna posts that she's been clean 42 days. So this gives us a glimpse into a risk factor in her disappearance. The following day, on February 7th, she shares that she and Joseph got married on the 6th as well. We were able to verify that though her marriage certificate was posted on the 6th, that was really just the the application for a marriage license, and that her marriage to Joseph was actually recorded with the Baldwin County Probate Office 
on March 8th, 2019. You know, we discussed that Brianna had graduated from Gulf Shores High School, but just as a side note here, the marriage certificate that she posted a photo of indicated that she had not graduated from high school, but had received a GED. Not that that matters either way, but it's just kind of an example of the limited but conflicting information that is out there. You know, it's hard to know who Brianna really was and determine kind of what was she going through. Um, another thing that the marriage certificate, you know, shed a little bit of light on was the fact that her new husband, Joseph, had been married previously as well, and that there was kind of an age gap there of about 10 years. So there was not only a difference in the maturity levels between the two of them, but also potentially, you know, a difference in the relationship experience they had. You know, we don't know what Joseph's previous relationships had been like. So, you know, according to Brianna's Facebook, which we'll get into shortly, her her relationship with Joseph was a little volatile at times. and. Maybe they were a little back and forth. A few days pass after a wedding post with some private posts that we can't see. And there's a reference to some sort of irritation with a group that has scheduled a court date with Baldwin County for her. This gives us a little bit more insight, even if just a hint, that there was some legal issues going on. After this, there's a bit of drama with her and Joseph, but just not a lot of information. However. A post on March 8th leads us to believe that there could be more to Brianna and Joseph's relationship. She posts a picture of herself and claims he clocked her in the nose and wanted someone to come pick her up. That quote, it's over. You know, it's interesting because I didn't really, when we were talking about this, it didn't really occur to me, but that's the same day that the marriage license actually Mm -hmm. says that they were married. There's a couple, I think there's a couple of things in her page that are a little bit like that. And it kind of makes me wonder if she isn't a little bit dramatic. But yeah, um, not that being hit is dramatic, but just that a lot of these little dates seem to be coinciding with some of these um, relationship things. Yeah. Their relationship doesn't seem to be over because many more posts with or about him occur almost as if nothing had happened. Though there are several posts that are private, so we can't really be sure what has been said or who made them private or maybe even deleted them. And as we know, people, you know, who are in such a situation of abuse or anything of the sort, sometimes they appear like everything's okay. Yeah, and they don't really... I'd say they don't really want attention brought to that. You know, they don't really broadcast what's going on. Mm-hmm. But in Brianna's case, it looks like there were instances where maybe she was trying to reach out for help. You know, one thing that we saw when we were going through the Facebook pages that was really kind of strange was that she had left a review on the McDonald's in Bay Manette on August 21st, 2019. And it said... Um, It doesn't recommend, but the comment was, it's my husband, I need help. And McDonald's replied back and said, hi, Brianna, please reach out to us. 
and left a phone number. And, you know, I thought maybe she was trying to check in as opposed to leaving a review and it just didn't happen. Because that comment obviously is completely unrelated to leaving a review for McDonald's. Um, By the way, kudos to McDonald's, though, for recognizing that and saying, give us a call. Um, Because it looks like they responded pretty quickly on the same day, like really fast. Um, So, you know, it seems like maybe there were times where she was asking for help. But, and I guess, you know, people, sometimes it, it takes a lot to get people to actually leave toxic relationships. Right. Yeah. The next indication that there are issues is when another guy is seen in her pictures in October and November of 2019, and her relationship status changes again to in a relationship, and then it's posted one more time on December 11th. The only other post on that page is a profile picture change, and then she starts a new page. That page begins with the event, Got Engaged 2020. Now, it's strange because we can't find any evidence of a divorce prior other than the pictures with a new guy. Um, The new guy's not in any of her new pictures. There are only a few updates with some selfies that really... Brianna looks tired and she looks sad. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, you can look at her older page and she just, she had such a pretty smile and she just looks happy when you go back to the beginning of her pages. And it's almost like you can see a change. You can see the progression, just, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Just in the, just in the photos from this limited information, you can see kind of this shift. And, that's sad. And then her pages seem to end with one last post on May 17th in 2020 that says, got married. And so we don't know of any divorce. We don't know who she got married to. Um, outside of Joseph. Outside of Joseph, right. So this is interesting for sure. Yeah. And... So we don't have any further updates of, or information to share yet. Um, we do have to wonder what may have happened to Joseph. Who did she supposedly marry in May and where did she go after this? Family hasn't heard from her since the prior month in April of 2020, according to the articles we found. And we aren't finding any traces of activity after May. So we're going to continue researching into Brianna's disappearance, and we hope to uncover some additional information and documentation. Once we do, we will make sure to provide an update for you so you can learn along with us what has happened to Brianna Reyes. If you or anyone you know has any information about the disappearance of Brianna Reyes, please contact the Foley Police Department at 251 952 4010. And as always, you may contact us via Messenger on the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy Facebook page or by email at alcoldcaseadvocacy at gmail.com. 
Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.